Good morning, everyone. Hymn 960, 960. Isaiah, mighty seer in days of old, the Lord of all in spirit did behold. High on a lofty throne in splendor bright, with robes that filled the temple courts with light, Above the throne were flaming seraphim, Six wings had they, these messengers of him. With two they veiled their faces as was right, With two they humbly hid their feet from sight. And with the other to aloft they soared, one to the other called and praised the Lord. Holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. Holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. Holy is God, the Lord of Sabaoth. His glory fills the heavens and the earth. The beams and lintels trembled at the cry, and clouds of smoke enwrapped the throne on high. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty God, our Father, your blessed Son called Luke the physician to be an evangelist and physician of the soul. Grant that the healing medicine of the gospel and the sacraments may, be put, may put to flight the diseases of our souls, that with willing hearts we may ever love and serve you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. The verse of the week is verses of the week from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Let's speak that together. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. All right. Ask, seek, and knock. Grammatically, what kinds of verbs would we call these? Okay, there's a specific... Okay, yes. What's the, uh, I guess, yeah, this, I guess this is the quiz <laughs> to see how long you were out of school. Um, it's not describing what something 
is not describing what is happening, but dictating what is happening. And we would call that kind of a verb an, if I give you a declaration, go to your room, it is an imperative. So then the question is, ask, seek, and knock are all imperatives. I think that's voice is where those are, imperative voice. So the question is, is this a command or is this a promise? It's in the imperative, so you could see it as Jesus saying, you better ask, you better seek, you better knock. It's in the imperative voice. But is it command or is it promise? Yes. Yeah, good. <laughs> it's, that's right. Never trust a pastor who asks you an either or. Uh, it, it is in some sense both. On the one hand, it is an imperative, and in the imperative sense, it describes what the life of faith is. The life of faith is a life of asking, of seeking, and of knocking from the day that you're baptized until the day that you die. But on the other hand, this is also promise because of the guarantee. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. So that with the imperative is not direct command, as in it doesn't say you'd better do these things, but it says do this because now you have the privilege to do it, and when you do it, these are the guarantees that you will find. Now the broader context of where these two verses fit in as part of the Sermon on the Mount uh, says this, Ev this everyone and the subject of all of these imperatives is the person of faith. The person who does not have faith doesn't ask. The person who doesn't have faith doesn't seek. They're not looking for anything. They don't need to seek. The person who doesn't have faith doesn't knock because they're not looking for anything to be opened. You see, it's that same, that same attitude that says the prideful cannot be saved because they're so busy looking down at themselves that they can't look up to heaven. Okay? So this is all this talking about, firstly, the person of faith, but also the life of faith and characteristics or descriptions of what the life of faith looks like. The life of faith is one that asks, that seeks, and knocks. And this is important for two reasons. The first is because it shows you that God hears sinners. Before this, in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord talks about giving what is good to the dogs and uh, unrighteousness, pearls before swine, things like that. And then many of the early church fathers commentate and they say this, but so that you don't think that you are a swine and that you don't have the ability to call upon God because you're a sinner, the Lord gives you these promises characterizing who you are. So there's one declaration then, and that is that God hears sinners. So you who are sinners can ask, seek, and knock, and you have the guarantee that even though you are a sinner in Christ, uh, it will be given, you will find, and it will be opened. Uh, hmm, I lost my train of thought. There were two things I was going to say, and I only said one of them. Oh well, we'll just keep on going. We'll keep on going. So God hears sinners. Now all of this 
Everyone who asks receives. One who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. This is all in faith. According to whom? According to how is it that you receive what you look for? Yes, but why does the Holy Spirit work that way? You're not wrong, but I need to push you on this. Why does the Spirit deliver gifts to you? Okay, but why does God deal with you the way that he does? And as a clue, not the way that you deserve to be dealt with. Hint, hint. Yeah, because of Christ. So all of this is because of Christ. The guarantees that you have here are because of Christ. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Here's the second thing. The first is that God hears sinners. The second thing is a comfort that this is all about the life of faith. And I'll tie it in that this is all about Christ, really, and what he's done for you and where your guarantees are. It means this, then. What this passage is not about is if you invite Jesus into your life hard enough, he'll come in. Or if you bang on the door and you're annoying enough, he'll finally listen to your prayers. Like the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow, which is not about be so annoying and persistent with your prayers that the Lord cannot help but to give to you because he's annoyed with you, but rather be persistent like the widow because even she was persistent even when she knew the, un, the judge was unjust. How much more then will you be persistent when you know that your judge is just? You see how that works now? It's not about saying you're not of faith, but if you do these things, then you will be of faith. It's about characterizing what it looks like to be in faith. If you're to this point, you're already in faith. And you're saying, what do I do? Because now that I'm in faith, I understand that I'm a sinner. How can I possibly pray? How can I possibly receive anything good from God? What am I? I am a swine. I'm what Jesus is talking about. I'm the little dog that shouldn't eat from the table. And he says, yes, you are. But these are the mercies that the Lord provides, uh, that God provides to you for my sake. And lastly, I want to leave you on this verse with a quote from St. Augustine. Love shall receive what truth provides. Isn't that great? Love will receive. That's your faith always receives. And you don't love if you're not of the faith. All of this ties together. Love re will receive that which truth provides. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. All right, let's speak this again together. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Yeah, okay, the Catechism. What is the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer? And lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. What is the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer? 
What does this mean? We pray in this petition, in summary, that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation. And finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. Yeah, good. There's a reason that I always combine the sixth and the seventh petitions. And it's not because if I didn't do it, we wouldn't have enough days in the Sunday school calendar to get through all the catechism that I want to get through. Uh, there is an actual theological reason, and it's based on the explanations. I think, as, and you'll notice this with the seventh petition, the B for but is not capitalized because it's not the beginning of a sentence. In the Lord's Prayer, really, the sixth and seventh petitions are part of the same group, so that when you pray, it goes like this, and lead us, comma, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So that you praying that you would be led not into, that you would not be led into temptation, and that you would be delivered from evil are not two separate things. And lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil, as if, you know, two separate bullet points there, but they're the same. It's all part of the same prayer. And that prayer is, lead us. So when you were praying to the Lord that he would lead you, then you necessarily define what it means to be led by the Lord. Not into temptation, but into deliverance from evil. That's why these two are combined. And their explanations in the small catechism go together very well and help serve that purpose. First of all, God tempts no one. That's obvious from the book of James, even. Um, if you pay attention to the news of the Roman Catholic Church, then you should know that there's a lot of hullabaloo about uh, the Pope changing the words of the official Lord's Prayer. Uh, instead of it saying, and lead us not into temptation, but it's now, I don't, I confess I didn't look this up before class, so I, I'm going on my memory, which is always bad. But it's something like, uh, Lead us in truth and don't ever deliver us into the hands of temptation. Something like that. And th the rationale is, well, we don't want people to think that God is going to lead them into temptation. And my response to that is, well, the book of James already says that God doesn't do that. And if you actually understand the Lord's Prayer the way that you're supposed to understand it and put a comma after lead us, then you're not really praying about the temptation side of things, or you're not praying that God wouldn't lead you. Oh, please, Lord, I know you want to, but really, please don't lead me into temptation. You're, you're praying that the Lord would lead you, which makes a lot more sense. So God tempts no one. That's a fact. God tests, but God does not tempt. There's a difference, which we can talk about if you really want to another time. Uh, so you're praying really that the Lord would lead you in the life of faith on the way, as I talk about a lot. The Lord would lead you on the way. He would guard and keep you so that, here are the things that will tempt you, devil, world, and your sinful nature. Or we would abbreviate sinful nature as flesh. Devil, world, and flesh. Those are your three big things. And you're not only praying that they would not lead you astray, but that they wouldn't deceive you. Deception is the beginning of being led astray. And really, deception is doubt. Doubt. So you don't want to doubt the Lord or be drawn away from him. You are attacked by these things daily. Uh, 
That's a given. In fact, in the large catechism, Luther says, if only you could see uh, the flaming darts that are hurled at you by your enemies every day. If you could see that, you would run all the more quickly for refuge to Christ and to his holy sacraments. Uh, so you're not, you're, please lead us, O Lord, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil so that uh, the evils, they wouldn't deceive us. They wouldn't cause us to doubt you or even that they wouldn't lead us away from you, but that you would always keep us in the truth, walking the way with you. Uh, and also then, that the evils of body and soul, possessions and reputation would be uh, sent away from us. That's important too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. heart, soul, and your mind. Okay? Why three? If you remember from that sermon that I preached, I don't, was, I don't even remember, last week or the week before. There's, there's a reason that it's three. Because you are triune creatures. You're made in the image of God, image and likeness of God, which means that you are actually Trinitarian as a human. You are a body, but you are also a spirit, a soul, and you are also a mind, a will. The, bir or the, uh, the union of body and soul produces a will, a desire, a mind. Okay? So when you pray for deliverance from all of the evils of body and soul, that's flesh and spirit. Anything that would attack the body, anything that would attack the soul. But you're also praying to be delivered from the evils of possessions and reputation, which are evils of the mind and of the will. Where does sin begin? Yeah, in, people might say in the heart, which this is sort of a weird thing linguistically. How do you talk about your desire to sin? Where does the desire rest? Really, theologically, it's in the will or in the mind, but where does your will live? If you say mind, you think of brain, but if you say will, you think of heart. But it's all the same thing. You know, early, uh, if you read a lot of literature from other cultures, we would talk about heart. Like, really bad advice to give someone is just follow your heart. Your heart's not actually literally going to lead you, but that's where you talk about the will. It lives in the heart. The ancient Greeks talked about it in your kidneys. What should I do? Follow your kidneys. They'll lead you. <laughs> See, but... Or, or your bowels, too. Well, your bowels will always tell you what's right. And I don't know. Maybe. Uh, but the point is, your will, your mind, will also cause you to sin. The, the whole second table of law, and really even the first, the, the beginning of sin is the will that decides it's going to sin. The sin of Adam and Eve, yes, they disobey, they eat the fruit, but that's not the real sin. There has to be a motivation that causes them to pluck the fruit. Your brain doesn't force you to reach your hand out and take something off a tree until you've made the decision that that's what you're going to do. So there is a deeper sin before the manifested sin. Okay, so this is, all of this is what you're pr praying for and that even at your life's last end you would be delivered from all of this and that you would do the one thing that you're preparing to do your entire life and that is to die well. As a Christian, that is your goal, to die well, and my goal is to prepare you to die well. That's really the only things that uh, we have to do. Everything else falls under those umbrellas. Okay, questions? Sorry, that was a little long. Okay, kids to Sunday school with you, away.
Very good. Okay, questions? Comments, anecdotes? <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know, about a year ago, listening on public radio, and it was some kind of a religious forum, and this guy got on and he spoke, he had a revelation, I'm not even sure that's the right term, about the Lord's Prayer. And uh -huh. then he went into about a 15 minute discourse on God didn't lead people into sin. And I thought, well buddy, you got a good idea, you're just about 500 years too late. <laughs> yeah, even longer than that too. You know, I had a... I had a friend who posted something on Facebook about how the Pope's so wrong about this. If he had only listened during the time of the Reformation. And, and that's fine, okay. Yes, it was highlighted during the time of the Reformation. But the point is, is Luther sitting down 500 years ago going, I have a really brand new novel idea. Now think about this for one minute. Just, let, just hope, you know, hear me out. God doesn't tempt anybody. Eh, eh? You know, is he just the first guy that ever thought of that? No, because it's ripped almost verbatim from the book of James, which is ironic because the book of James is the, <laughs> that's the epistle that Luther hated. He thought it should be taken out of scripture and he called it an epistle of straw. Was it Luther's favorite Bible? It was not. Luther thought that it talked about works righteousness and Luther was wrong. It doesn't talk about works righteousness, but it does talk about works. Uh, which is a good segue because we're going to continue talking about works. Hopefully this will be the last week and then we'll get on to the last little bits of faith and then finish up all that other stuff and move on to something new. Fat chance, right? Um, so Ephesians 2 is, the, is where we'll kind of be spending a lot of our time today, jumping back and forth between that and some of the confessions. One good thing that you can learn from Luther hating the book of James is that when you open your, if you have the Concordia Self-Study Bible or your uh, Lutheran Study Bible or any other Lutheran Bible, and I, that I say on purpose, when you open that up and you go and you scroll through the New Testament, what book do you still find? James. Luther hated it. Luther thought it was an epistle of straw. But Luther also said, the church has decided that this needs to be here and I am not going to go against the authority of the church. And that's a really important lesson to learn that the church, uh, when the church speaks, the church always speaks with authority. Which also then ties in with the brief conversation last week that we had about what it means that something is inspired and what it means that something is canonical versus scriptural. Because obviously you know what the books of the Bible is, you know what the books of the Bible are, and you know that the Apocrypha is not considered to be scripture, but that there are books that are considered to be canon. All scripture is canon, not all canon is scripture. It doesn't mean that they're not inspired, but it does mean that they aren't inspired scripture. And the Lutherans, it's okay for Lutherans to believe that, and honestly it's okay for Lutherans to read things like the, uh, the Apocrypha. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. And if you want a place to start, let me know and I'll give you a few places to start in reading that because it's really phenomenal. I have a friend on Facebook who is, he's, he's somebody who came to Lutheranism later in life and is very staunchly Lutheran and is just now branching out and started reading the Apocrypha. 
he started wis reading wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. And he started posting all this stuff on Facebook. Wow, I can't believe I've never read this before. And now every five minutes, he's posting something else that he read from wisdom. So uh, it's okay to read that stuff. But really, the Lutherans believe in this idea of inspiration as being something that applies to scripture, but also to other things of the church. The church, can, the church operates in a spirit of inspiration as well. And I think to deny that is to deny the working of the Holy Spirit. If you, if you say that the only time that the Spirit ever does in any inspiring is when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sit down at their tables, like in the old paintings, and all of a sudden a lightning bolt hits them or the dove lands on their shoulder, like in the paintings, and whispers into their ear, hey, write this down. He goes, oh, that's a really good idea. I'll do that. You know, or they're like marionettes. I don't know what's happening. My hand is grabbing a quill and I'm just writing things. Wow, look at that. I never would have thought to write these things down. If that's the very end of it, and if Pentecost is the end of the working of the Spirit, then why bother having the Spirit at all? Why bother observing Pentecost every year? Well, it's just an, a historical observation of it because then we're saying it's part of the calendar because it happened once but never again. <laughs> now, people can still speak in tongues. That's fine. We affirm that. But we also affirm that if they're going to speak in tongues, there should probably be someone who can understand them so that if you go down to other churches, whose names I will not mention, who believe in speaking in tongues, but who roll around in the aisles going, hala, 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 you'll realize nobody really understands what you're saying. And if nobody can understand what you're saying, I'm not entirely convinced that's really the Holy Spirit and not you just working yourself up. Uh, but the Spirit still works. The Spirit still inspires. This is why the Latin version of the small catechism and not the German, sorry, Bill, the Latin and not the German is so important because the Latin is the academic language. Uh, the, the German was the language of the people. The, things were written into German so that all of the peasants could read and understand things. But when it came down to writing a doctrinal treatise or writing things that appeared before church councils, the language of the church, even during the Reformation, was still Latin. Uh, the hymns of the church often were still written in Latin, even beyond the point of the Reformation. I have a whole book called the Liber Hymnorum, the book of hymns. And it's a collection of the Latin hymns of the Reformation and it's split into two parts. The first part is translations of the Latin with modern musical notation. But the second half is all of the original Latin with old chant notation for all the hymns, the way they would have been sung. It's really cool. But you can look through this book and you can see all of these Latin hymns that they're using. So Latin matters. What I'm driving at is the explanation from the small catechism in the Latin for the third commandment, which has something that the German version that you all learned does not have. And that is that it calls sermons divinely inspired, which means that every time pastor gets up into the pulpit and starts speaking, it's not the pastor's words, it's the Lord's words, and the pastor is inspired by the working of the Holy Spirit in the office of the ministry, just like the apostles and evangelists were inspired in the spirit to say the things they said and to write the things they wrote. Now, I'm not saying I'm an evangelist, and I'm not saying that any pastor who gets into the pulpit or who is before the altar and gets ordained magically becomes an evangelist. 
those, that title is reserved for four special men. But what I am saying is that the working of the Holy Spirit hasn't stopped, and it still goes on. So it's okay to call things inspired, uh, as long as you understand what that means, and understanding that there is a distinction between the things that are inspired and scripture. So all of the things of the church that are considered canonical are things the church also considers to be inspired, but not all of those things are scripture. Okay? I think when I wrote a newsletter article about this maybe, and I drew this, I don't really want to erase all this. So it's like this, here's canon, And then of that canon, there's just this little bit that is scripture. But all of this is inspired. Okay. So needless to say, then, if the church says this is a book of the Bible, then... Christians say, yeah, you know what? The church has said that this is an important book, that it's part of the Bible. That's great. But then when the church also says, and by the way, the confessions say this too, things like wisdom and Sirach and Baal and the dragon and Tobit, they're all in here. Uh, when the confessions also say, hey, these are important things, that's the voice of the church. And it's our job to say, oh, yes. When Mother Church speaks, her children listen. Okay? Now, Ephesians 2, let's look at this. Everybody knows this. Let me just make sure I have the... Yeah. Okay, just right from the very beginning, we'll probably do... Oh... Through verse 10. If somebody would just read those first 10 verses. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you were once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power and of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the souls and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him on the heavenly places of Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might, allow, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, but a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, stop just there for a second. Sorry to be rude and interrupt. All right, you know next week is Reformation, Reformation right? So you're, you're going to hear this again for Reformation. And this is often where it stops, isn't it? For by grace you have been saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then you can say, rah, rah, it's not about works. But now read verse 10. For we, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Whoops. <laughs> 
Oh, yes. There is so much to talk about in Ephesians 2, but I, I always love that, that you only ever go through verse 9, or you only ever hear it going through verse 9, and then everyone goes, oh, faith alone, faith alone, faith alone, and then you read verse 10, and it says, oh yeah, but you were created for good works, so do them, because you're created to do them, and then we, oh no, what are we supposed to do with this? Good works? Oh, we don't do that. Ah, but we do because you're created for it. This is what I talk about when I say that faith is not something you have, it's something you live. And when you're alive, it's not enough to say that I am, I am animate. I have breath. I have a brain. I can move my feet if I want to, but I don't want to. I'm just going to stand here and be alive. The living statue downtown who paints himself and who stands there, he's alive. Is it enough? Can you live your life like a living statue? Well, I'm alive. That's what counts, right? <laughs> no. I mean, you have to live. You have to do things. Being made alive is, uh, is something that happens with the understanding that now that you are alive, you will live. It's not that you're just going to be alive. It's that you're going to live. Uh, that's why I use this phrase, Christian life and living. Because it's not enough just to say this is what the Christian life is. You also have to include this verb, living, because it indicates in the present tense, this participle, that this is something you are currently doing, or at the very least is something that is expected that you will be doing now. Not just saying, well, I was baptized, nothing else matters now, but that you actually begin living in the new life. That's what you were created for. So here's the thing about works. Do works save you? Or rather, that's a bad question. That's a bad question. Are works what merit the grace of God? What in you merits the grace of God? Nothing. Nothing in you merits the grace of God. According to St. Paul, what does merit the grace of God? Or rather, why does God give grace? God would that all men would be saved. Yes, but why? We're his children. Yes, 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 and that means? He loves us! The motivating factor of everything that God does is always love. It is always love. You can sit around, I don't know if you had to do this as part of your catechism class, but you can systematically tear apart God on paper. When you go through and you say, what are the attributes of God? He is immutable. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. And then you sit and you have to try and remember, well, what are all these, what are all these, characteristics of God. What is all of this? But it never begins with love, which is a sad thing to me because the primary attribute of God is not that he's omniscient. It's not that he's immutable. It's not that he's omnipresent. It's that he is love. Correct. And how do you know that God is love? And what does love look like? I've asked this before. This is review. Because, see, this is the thing. How do you know that God is unchanging? 
You read it. It's told to you through Scripture, which is fine. But you don't experience it. You don't witness it. How do you know that God is omnipresent? I mean, you, can't, you can say God is with me even now, but you can't look around and say, oh, oh there he is. Oh, there's a little more of him right there. How do you know that God is omniscient? It's not like you sit down with him and have a conversation. Hey, if I'm driving at the speed of light and I turn the headlights on, what happens? Oh, great answer. He really is omniscient. <laughs> okay, through faith, yes, 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 that's all fine and dandy. But there is something really different about the attribute of love than those other things. Because love takes a concrete form with God. What is the concrete form? Christ, yes. The Lord takes on flesh. Christ is the icon of God. You want to know what the Father looks like? You look at Jesus. There's a lot of contemporary worship songs that say things like, Father, I want to see your face. Father, I want to see your face. And I always have two responses to that. The first one is, I don't think you do. There's never been a time in Scripture where somebody has looked at even a part of the Father and thought, I'm really glad to be doing this. I can't wait to see more of him. Moses only sees even the burning bush and he already falls down at his face. Look at what happens to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 before the heavenly throne when he sees the Lord of all in spirit. Woe is me. Why does he say woe is me? Because he knows he's about to get fried. Because the holiness of God consumes sin. God will always eradicate sin, either by forgiving it or by consuming it. But sin, in one way or another, cannot be in the presence of God. And if you are a sinner and you are in the presence of God and you behold the face of God, which is not to say that God stands like this and then goes, Hey, I see you. It's not that. It's anthropomorphic language. But to have the face of God beholding you, or even in the Aaronic benediction, may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, it's to say that the fullness of God is with you and acting uh, upon you and for you and that the Lord, when he looks upon you, that he's hearing your prayers and that he's with you. So if the Lord turns his face to you in that sense that the fullness of the divine is with you, woe is you because you get fried. And it's not even like he tries to do it. I mean, there's a funny Gary Larson comic that's called God at His Computer, and at the screen just shows a guy walking, and his finger is hovering above a button on the keyboard that says, smite. <laughs> it's not like God sits there and whoop. <laughs> it's that he can't even help it. It's just part of his nature. Holiness and unholiness don't mix, even worse than oil and water. It's like two magnets. They just repel each other. They can't be, to, can't be together. So, um, love is the concrete form, or excuse me, Christ is the concrete form of God's love for you then. Uh, you don't really want to see the face of the Father because that's a bad thing for you. <laughs> but the other thing is, that this is my other question, why do you want to see the face of the Father? When you have the icon of the fullness of God in his Son. What does the Father look like? Who cares? This is what God looks like. What does love look like? Christ crucified. That's the, that is the depiction of love. Love now takes a concrete form for you. 
body and blood, baptismal water. How do you know that God is with you? Because, yes, but why does his promise matter, Jim? I mean, you can talk nebulously or ephemerally about, well, God promises and God doesn't break a promise. But it's not enough. And even God has said it's not enough because he's given you things that are concrete. You know that God is going to keep his promises to you. Why? Because you've been baptized. You know that God is with you. Why? Because you've been baptized. So you can look around the room and say, well, I know that God is with me and I know that God is everywhere because I know he is omnipresent, but I know, no, no, that he is with me because I've been baptized and that's now a concrete thing. In that water and in that word, it is now a concrete thing. The, the uh, omnipresence of God takes on concrete form in baptism. There's a lot more that I can say about all of this, but this is about as simply put as I can, and it all comes through Christ and through love. So it is through Christ that grace is merited. Here's, here's the other problem then with talking about faith, sometimes the way that we're tempted to do, to say, I believe. Why does the Lord save you? I believe in Christ. I believe in Jesus. All who believe on me are saved. Well, I believe in Jesus, so that means that I'm saved. What is the potential problem with that? Do you see it? I'm saved because I believe. Mm-hmm. I encourage you to believe. Good. But here's the problem, folks. If you say, I am saved because I believe, that's not faith. That's works. Say the word believe then puts an action. I mean, like, I can't be saved until I believe. I do something. I believe. Right. Believe is a strange word because believe is a word of faith, but it can also be used in a way that is not faithful. Now, you who have faith, do you believe? Yes. Yes, of course you do believe. And if somebody took you uh, out and they said, I'm hunting down Christians, do you believe in Jesus? You would say, yes, I do believe in Jesus. But, here, but this is the kicker then. Why is it that you believe? Because you have faith. Huh? You see? So faith means that you believe but faith is more than just believing. Does that make sense? Faith and belief are not exactly synonyms. Belief stems from faith, but faith does a whole lot more than just saying belief. Here's another problem with the statement, I'm saved because I believe. It sounds an awful lot like head knowledge. What do we say? The Holy Spirit works faith in us. And therefore, since the Holy Spirit works faith in me, then I believe. Sure, you can say that. Uh, I mean, if, you, if someone asks you the question, why are you saved, the easiest thing to say is what? I N not I believe. Warmer. Christ Be yeah, because Christ died for me. Why are you saved? Because Christ died for me. 
That's the answer. So to be saved by faith doesn't mean that you're saved because I believe. And oh yeah, that's where I was. The, the other problem with saying I believe is that belief is often understood as intellectual assent. Remember the story about uh, William Willimon in his PhD class at Yale? And the student said, but what can I do? How can I be a Christian if I can't affirm the virgin birth in the creed? And what was the answer of the priest? Repeat. Pardon me? Repeat. Yeah, keep saying it. But why? Because whose creed is it? Not yours. When you say the words of the creed, it's not you saying, I, Daryl Voltmer, publicly acknowledge, intellectually assent to, and confess, logically, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. I've done my fact-checking and my historical research, and only after doing all of that can I fully say that it happened. <laughs> it's not that at all. It's not your creed, it's the church's creed. You speak the words of your mother, and they work on you. Words of the church, not of you. Your intellectual assent is of very little value in the church, I'm afraid. Outside in the world, it's of a lot of value in a lot of different areas. But in here, it's kind of worthless. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. Uh, you know, understanding and, in, excuse me, and using your intellect are important in the church. I mean, you can't be a theologian. You can't be someone who studies scripture if you don't look at intellect, if you, if you can't read and understand and inwardly digest, as the old collect says. Um, but on the other hand, when it comes to the doctrines of the church or specifically things like the creeds, the basic tenets of the Christian faith, I really couldn't care less about your intellectual assent or your, the opinions of your intellect. Those don't really matter. Okay? So to say I am saved because I believe is not the same thing as it is to say that I am saved by faith. Here's the other thing. Now, St. Paul talks a lot about Abraham, he uses Abraham as an example of faith. Can you think of specifically what he says about Abraham? God gives Abraham a promise. Really, actually, at this time, it's Abram, because his name wasn't changed yet. But I'll let it slide, St. Paul. <laughs> that was just a joke. <laughs> Abraham believed and God counted it. God counted it to him as righteousness. Yeah, that's the verse that I was looking for. God counted it to him as righteousness. But what is it? Did you ever think about that? No. <laughs> is it, so is it saying, God said, Abraham, you're believing, that's really great, and because you're believing, now you're righteous. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. You're learning. Yeah, come along. Come on in, okay? <laughs> right? No, that's intellectual assent, that God only makes Abraham worthy insofar as Abraham says, yes, you know what? I think I do believe that. Thank you. And the Lord says, I'm glad we entered into this arrangement. Now you're righteous. Hey, thanks. It's the... The Lord accounts Abram righteous, first of all, it's by grace, not by the works of Abraham, but Abram. Now I'm confusing myself. 
but it's also the content of the promise. When you look back into Genesis 15, I think. Genesis 15 is where it is. Um, the Lord has already made a promise to Abram at that point that from him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham or Abram then goes to God and says, hey, what are you going to give me? When are you going to give me a child? Look, Eleazar of Damascus is my only heir. Are you really going to let somebody who isn't even of my own flesh be my heir? And it's, almost, it's kind of cheeky if you look at the text and don't understand it, that Abram would think he has the ability to go before God and make a demand like that. Sort of like the demands of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, think about that for a second. When you grow up, your parents teach you that you're supposed to say, please and thank you. Sometimes it's a struggle, as we're finding out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I know, I know. It's the beginning of a long, fun journey. But the point is, when your child doesn't say please or doesn't say thank you, then, you, then that's, well, that's impolite. No, you have to say please, you have to say thank you. You don't get to just say, I want that, give me that. Uh, you have to say, please, may I please have that? May I please do this? And then you look at the Lord's Prayer and the language is exactly what you're told not to say. Hey, give it to me. <laughs> and the Lord says, yeah, okay, here you go. You don't have to say please and thank you to me when you're praying the words that I gave you to pray because you're making a demand based on a promise. I already said I would give it to you, so when you come and say, hey, give that to me, please. I say, okay, that's fine. I already said I would. Here you go. Um, so when Abraham, when Abram asks the Lord, hey, what are you gonna, when are you going to do this? He's actually trusting in the promise still. I can't have the nations of the earth be blessed through me if I don't have a child. It's the same kind of reading in between the lines that you have to do when you read the account of the sacrifice of Isaac. Um, because you can, you can look at it as Abram's faith. Abraham, he's Abraham then. Abraham's faith. And you can say, yes, he really does have faith. If he didn't have faith, he wouldn't go and do that. But what does he have faith in? That's the question. What does he have faith in? Is it just that, well, the Lord said to do it, and I have faith in the Lord, and that means that having faith uh, gives me blind obedience. So anything that he says, if the Lord told me to jump off a cliff, I would jump off a cliff. I mean, is that what we're talking about? Is that what he has faith in? Faith always has to have an object. You can't just say, well, I have faith. What do you believe in? Oh, nothing. Just have faith. Doesn't, doesn't work. Abraham has to have faith in something that would drive him to sacrifice his only son. And his faith is in the resurrection. And it's in the same promise. The same promise that gives Abraham the boldness to say, give me a child, is the, the same promise then that gives him the boldness to sacrifice his son. Because that is, Isaac is his only son and the Lord has already said, the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. Which means one of two things. Either he will stop me from sacrificing my son so my son doesn't die, or after I sacrifice my son, he will be raised from the dead. So it's really no harm, no foul. If I sacrifice him and I kill him, he'll be raised from the dead. And if I don't, then he's still alive. 
It's a win-win for me. You see that? You have to read in between the lines a little bit and you find what it is that he actually believes in. It's this promise. And that promise, all of this goes back to what we call the proto-evangelion. You who are in midweek, or who are not in midweek anymore, you too, uh, you missed out. Because now we're learning cool Latin words. Sorry. You can always come back if you want. I won't roll back your reception of the Eucharist. I promise. Even though sometimes with you, I do accidentally. Um, yes, so the Proto-Evangelion, which is just the first gospel, which is Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman. That really is the substance of the promise that the Lord makes to Abraham as well, to uh, all the patriarchs. The prophets preach about that same promise. It's that one promise that ties through all of Scripture. Everything points to Christ who is to come. Excuse me, and they understand it. Like Jacob's vision of the the ladder to heaven, it's not really a ladder. Makes a lot more sense if you understand it as it not being a ladder. Like angels are, hold on, coming up, going down. No, it isn't a ladder. The... The language is kind of tricky, but it refers to a vertical pole that has a horizontal crossbeam attached to it. Cross. Yeah, look at that, it's a cross. Not just a ladder, but a cross. So that when Abram, or, oh my goodness, I'm all over the place today. When Jacob has his vision It's not of a ladder with angels going up and down. Oh, look, heaven's a real place, and the angels go up on a ladder. Uh, It's a cross. He He sees a vision of the substance of the promise that was given to his father and his grandfather and in the garden to his forefathers, Adam and Eve. He sees the Christ crucified in the flesh and angels ascending and descending on the Christ. And there are really great paintings of it where they go along his body with little chalices and they collect the blood that's dripping out of his hands and then they fly over to the altar where communion's happening and they put the chalice down at the altar and the pastors take it and go give it to the people. You see, so um, Christ is always the content of the promise and not just, oh, somebody's going to come. No, the Son of God who will be made flesh. That is the substance of the promise. Seed of the woman. It's the son of God. Uh, So the Lord counts Abraham righteous because of the content of the promise. It's the same reason that he counts you righteous. The content of the promise. Because when he looks at you, he sees what? Yeah, he sees his son. You're a dear child. Now, he loves you, which is why he wants to give you all of his gifts. But his greatest gift is bringing you into his body, clothing you with the righteousness of his son. So that on the last day, firstly, you're now put on the path to do good, which you couldn't have done before. If you're not in Christ, you can't do good works, uh, which is something we may or may not actually have time to look at that I had planned to look at. But the reformers talk about even good works that are performed uh, or even even the works that are performed by people who don't believe in the Lord, who are not baptized, who are not of the faith at all, even those works, no matter how good they are, are sinful because they're not good works. 
The only thing that is actually considered a good work is an act that is done in faith. And anything apart from that, no matter how charitable or nice or kind it is, is not a good work. Because it doesn't have Christ as its motivator. Christ is the source of all good. And if the source of your good is not in Christ, it isn't good. Uh, so now you're, you're, you're brought in, you're put on this path to do good works, created to do good works, Sa not saved by those works, saved by the grace of God that now enables you to do those good works and, in a sense, mandates them. This is how James can talk about faith from the perspective of the last day. This was the distinction that I wanted you to make last week between Paul and James. It's a distinction that Luther doesn't make, and that's part of Luther's problem with James because he looks at Paul, and Paul seems to be talking about faith all the time. Faith this, faith that, Abraham justified by faith, faith saved by grace through faith, bop, 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 bop. And then you look at James, and James says, do this, do that, do this. If you don't have works in your faith, your faith is dead. And then you look at Revelation, and it says, when you come to heaven, you're going to be judged because he'll look at the things you did. And then you confess the Athanasian Creed that says those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter into eternal damnation. So it's, they're speaking of the same thing, though, just two sides of it. Faith is the substance, and works are the character. You can't have works without faith. Hence, nobody who is not, anybody who is not of the faith cannot perform a good work. That's an awkward sentence, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase it. If someone is not of the faith, their good works are not good works. There. Because good works come from faith. But similarly, faith comes from or is emphasized by good works. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you a faith that is dead. And show me works without faith, and I'll also show you a faith that is non-existent. So you're saved by the grace of God. Now here's the fun thing. Getting back to that one question that I asked. And all of this is right here in Ephesians. Are you saved by works? No. Why not? You just said works without faith is not... They're, they're not okay. I never said anything about your works. I just asked if you were saved by works. Yeah, that's the, see, that's it. If you see the glimmer in my eye, <laughs> it's danger, danger. Right. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. How do you fulfill the law without works? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Yes, all of that is a gift of God. In Christ you have the fulfillment of the law. Christ keeps the law perfectly. You are saved to a certain degree by works. They're just not your own. You talk about, when we use the language of, by the merits of Christ. That's what we're talking, merits. Your works are not meritorious for salvation, but Christ's are. And the pinnacle of Christ's meritorious works for you are the death and resurrection. 
because Christ is the priest. I mean, you, you have to see it like this. Christ is the priest. What does a priest do? The priest doesn't just have faith. The priest makes sacrifices. Who are the sacrifices for? The people. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's for Christ, Christ's atonement. Christ's atoning sacrifices for everyone. The Old Testament priests sacrificed for the people. I mean, the Old Testament's a bloody book. Even just reading about sacrifices, it's bloody. I mean, how would you like it if we did, an, if we did Old Testament-style church one day where you came and then uh, you couldn't walk in until I took a whole bunch of blood and then threw blood on your nice Sunday school clothes? Uh, and then, okay, now you're all bloody. Now you can come in. And it's hot and it smells bad and you're covered in blood. And that's the Old Testament church, but it's like that for a reason. You have to have the blood. It's all about the blood. The life is in the blood. That's why you don't drink the lifeblood of the animal. The life is in the blood. You eat the flesh, but you don't drink the blood. But now, with Jesus, you do drink the blood. Why wouldn't you drink the blood of one lamb, but you drink the blood of the Lamb of God? For the same reason. It's the same reason you, you don't drink the blood of one and you drink the, the life is in the blood. You don't want the life of this lamb. That's a scapegoat for you. That's a sacrificial animal. You don't want that life. That's just putting you back to square one exactly where you were. But by all, the same account, you want the life of the blood that of, you want the lifeblood of this lamb of God. Because that is the true fruit of life. Christ becomes the new tree in a new garden, giving you the fruit of life and of knowledge better than before. So um, you are saved by the grace of God, yes, but by the grace of God sends his only son to accomplish salvation. I mean, look at this language. It, look at it really carefully, and you realize you've been saying this your entire life. You just didn't realize it. The accomplishments of Christ. Christ accomplishes salvation. If you accomplish something, what does that mean? Hey, well done on your accomplishment. Okay, you, sure, you passed a test, but the broader scope of it is that you did something. You began it and you finished it, but you did it. Congratulations, you accomplished it, your accomplishment. So that's the language that we talk about. Christ accomplished salvation. You are uh, saved by the merits of Christ, meaning Christ has merited something that you can't. Your works do not merit salvation, but Christ's do. So you're saved by works in that sense. You're just not saved by your own works. You're saved by the works of Christ and then made in the image of Christ so that you can do good works. It's, it's Christ who saves. Your works don't save you, but your works come from you being saved. Does that kind of make sense? It's all over the place, I know. Okay. All right, well, we'll finish. We'll wrap this up next week then. Any other questions? In King James, the first verses, and you have he quickened. Yeah, quickened. I love it. Uh, I like that. Like in the, in the old language of the creed, the quick and the dead. I like it. All right, my quick friends, we'll see you at the altar.